Matt doesn't like things that are ambiguous. That's not my complaint at all. <laughs> back to EnterTheRealWorld.com. This is There Will Be Movies, where myself, Matt Waters, and Ben Phillips go through 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade, starting with Volume 1, controversially, uh, 2000 to 2009. And uh, Ben, how are you on this fine day? Nice and hungover? Nice and hungover. Yeah. I shouldn't go up people who just want to buy me wine. Never do that. It's a giant red flag. It's not at all. Uh, episode 14, we are doing Pan's Labyrinth, aka El Labyrintho del Forno. The whole yeah, pan not, thing not pan, only pan for the English language. Because I think I think Fawn's Labyrinth would confuse many people. Why? Well, does pan isn't a thing that the average person has like a cultural like yeah, but I, I, for? I, I don't know. I just imagine if they call it a fawn, they're just going to think of fucking Danny DeVito from Hercules. <laughs> Or Mr. Tumnus. Or Mr. Tumnus. <laughs> the other uh, the other famous form. Which is fitting, given what this movie is. This was put on our list by you. Mm-hmm. I I acknowledge that for a large portion of my life, I was a little bit contrarian-y. And the more people were like, this fucking movie, I was like, ugh. So it's better than I spent a good portion of my life saying it is. But I think it's just good and that's it. Whereas for some people, this is like transcendent filmmaking and like one of the best movies ever made and I'm like you're crazy but for you perhaps I'm not going to go that strong I think this is one of my favourite movies of the decade I think this does a lot of things that I love about Guillermo del Toro Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's easily his best movie I I know people love Blade 2 and the Hellboys and Pacific Rim (sighs) people should not love Blade 2 sorry I I can't (laughs) do it again but keep going and it feels like when he made Shape of Water a lot of that movie winning best picture is kind of an apology because like I mean obviously like Pacific Grim and Crimson Peak kind of like steer away from it but you've got this kind of like Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy 2, Shape of Water his Doug Jones kind of <laughs> series yeah. of movies keeping him in in work was Doug, was Doug Jones in Pacific. oh he's in, Mim- he's in Mimic as well yeah I was trying to remember yeah like, he's in Mimic and he, and he is, and he is that's why he got Pacific. the job on this yeah. I wrote directed and directed by Guillermo del Toro but it's written and directed is what I was going for there and you've kind of covered it there like his other movies that came out in this decade uh, due to the rules of this podcast both the Hellboys are disqualified on two grounds really one I guess it counts as we said no capes no superhero movies even though there's no capes in that movie or whatever and two it was already covered mike and i did hellboy one and two on this podcast go find that uh if you're listening on soundcloud or whatever it's under the best of the rest playlist because we couldn't come up with a name for a two episode series because you guys are comic illiterate into the hellboy <laughs> read the hellboy comics they're really good i have been very tempted i saw some hellboy comics they are yeah. sexy the library editions are so gorgeous Look, and wonderful. i've got to read my sweet sweet teenage mutant ninja turtle comics first there are 20 20, like two or 26 volumes of that and I'm on like volume 6 so I'll be a while with that there's only like 11 volumes of Hellboy <laughs> That's don't say it like only when there's 11 Blade 2 of course also disqualified and also it fucking sucks I think but Devil's Backbone I've never seen have you seen Devil's Backbone? I've not seen Devil's Backbone I must okay. I must say I've not seen a lot of his like 90s stuff okay well I've seen Mimic that's quite good 
I learned that Devil's Backbone, that this is essentially a sequel to Devil's Backbone, and he's like, yeah, I, the characters yeah, it, from it, it are in this, and yeah. It's very much like themes. Spanish Civil War, with a supernatural yeah. thing happening to the side that may or may not be real, but probably is real. There you go. So which, which characters <laughs> cross over? I think some of the rebels in this are supposed to be grown-up versions of the kids from the orphanage in Devil's Backbone. Uh, okay. Yeah, so released October 2006 in Spain and Mexico, a few weeks apart. And November of 2006 in the UK. I actually couldn't find a US release date. I th- it's got to have been around October, November, though. I can't believe they were that far behind, even if it had a limited showing. 18th of December. Wow, okay. So With, yes. a, limited, with a limited release on the 29th of December. Yes. So this skated in very, very, at the last minute to get nominated for the Oscars. Yeah. Although I think, even though it had such a limited release, due to the size of America, it actually showed on more screens in America than anywhere else. But it was still such a tiny release if you look at most films that release in America. So we've discussed 2006 twice in terms of films, so there's not really a lot to go on. But Ben, if you want to talk about Pan's Labyrinth, sort of opening week to month or whatever. Yeah, so it opened 24th of November in the UK. It earned about $600,000 at the UK box office, putting it at number eight. It was the fifth highest grossing new new movie of the month or the week behind Santa Claus 3 Tenacious D A Pick of Dex, De- Destiny Jackass 2 and Doom 2 a Bollywood movie I believe that's not good is it <laughs> no it's not um, and that even then number one and number two movies at the box office that week were Borat at number two earning about three million dollars mm-hmm. and Casino Royale number one with a whopping 16.5 million dollars in its second week well I feel like Del Toro's name didn't start carrying weight until this had already come out and most people have missed it. Yeah, I um, think this is this is the movie where Del Toro becomes like an auteur because obviously a lot of his stuff before this was like people liked Hellboy and they liked Blade. But I feel even with those, you didn't know he was involved almost. It's like, yeah, it's this Hellboy movie. It's not like oh yeah, Del Toro who made Hellboy. I feel that did take effect for Hellboy 2 because of Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, like you look at Hellboy 2 and Hellboy 2 is basically a Del Toro movie. Yes. Like Hell- Hellboy very much pulls from the comics a lot more, whereas Hellboy 2 is very much like, well, what if I just do my same creature designs and basically pour over the, the yeah. design team from Pan's Labyrinth? His golden movie. elves and, and his pixies and his, yeah, all that stuff. Like, yeah, did he, didn't he decide not to do a Pan's Labyrinth sequel to go do Hellboy 2? You are reading straight from my notes. <laughs> yes, he, he did turn down making a sequel that was called, like, 3077 or something like that to make Hellboy 2. So yeah, and then go. and then he spends five five years trying to make a Hobbit movie, walks off, and then does the um big fighty robot movie. He does Evangelion live action. Uh, yeah, it is 119 minutes long, uh, so nice and breezy, especially compared to The Departed. A tiny budget of 19 million dollars made 83 million dollars though, so still still a profitable movie, even if quite small. He was actually offered at least twice the budget to make it in English by American studios and he kept turning them down. Good for him. But it does Yeah, no, I think I think this movie completely would fall flat if it was yeah. made in English somewhere else. I think what makes this so special is I mean obviously he's from Mexico, he's not from Spain, but which became a bit of a political thing as well. <laughs> I think some of the Spanish studios were talking some shit to him and he's like, Wow, you're Mexican so you don't get it and it's like, okay dude, calm the fuck down. And yeah, he wrote the subtitles 
subtitles himself because he was so he very much did not like some of the subtitles that had been done for his work in the past and yeah he had to give up his entire salary and back-end profits to get it made but it obviously has made him a far more in-demand filmmaker so I am sure there is not an ounce of regret there but yeah this was very much his passion project. It's interesting though because he's very much one of those people who he doesn't get a lot of projects made. No I feel he's attached to a million things and none of them ever happen. Yeah like I think I think he is probably the most exacting filmmaker that we've done so far like he's not Martin Scorsese who like I think the movie After Hours was set up to be Tim Burton and like Mm. a big breakthrough for Tim Burton but he basically like gave the script to Martin Scorsese because he was so frustrated that he wasn't able to make Last Temptation of Christ (laughs) so so like like Martin Scorsese like I think the movie got shut down so Martin Scorsese was just like I need to make a movie I can't not not make a movie whereas Game of Horror is perfectly happy to spend five years behind the scenes on The Hobbit and then not make them in the end yeah I think he's just so invested he's like constantly living in this world in his own head kind of thing that like I think he considers all of his movies his life's work kind of thing rather than each one its own I don't know yeah I I just feel he's more creatively satisfied because he's always thinking about it yeah I I do want to see his movie of like In the Mountains of Madness like that that I think feels like a dream project for him but Mm. we'll see if anyone ever wants to make it let him make it (laughs) Del Toro is someone who doesn't want to be artistically compromised and when he when he gave when he turned down the American money he was like I want it to be about the movie I don't want it to be dictated by the market and stuff yeah and I think the two movies that kind of are his most pure efforts like are Pan's Labyrinth and Shape of Water and they're the two that have the most gone acclaim. on to massive critical acclaim <laughs> yeah like like Shape of Water it's not my favourite movie that was nominated for the Oscars that year but it is a wonderful movie I totally understood it without subtitles <laughs> <laughs> so Del Toro famously keeps these notebooks that he's spent like decades writing and doodling in that are just full of his like bizarre ideas that he has in a, in a good way so this came out of that as did several of his movies uh, in particular he had a lot of lucid dreams as a child about a fawn emerging from behind a grandfather clock and that is what got him going with this he pitched the movie out loud to Sergio Lopez who plays Vidal he was talking to him for two and a half hours and he's like yeah this sounds great show me a script and he's like oh I haven't written any of it and then he wrote it and it was, it was like exactly the same so there you go he turned down making the Chronicles of Narnia to do this which is basically his own version of the Chronicles of Narnia in my opinion but he was at one point circled as someone they wanted to do that Chronicles of Narnia movie did it come out this same year or was it the year before I think it was the year before it must be the year before I think it was 2005's yeah. Chronicles of Narnia yeah okay and as you said he chose not to do the sequel because he was going to do Hellboy 2 and my final piece of trivia before we get going Bjork wrote the song New Pneumonia immediately after seeing this movie. So listen mm-hmm. to Pneumonia on loop and then listen to us talk about the movie. So this is set in Spain shortly after the Spanish Civil War. It's set in 1944, and the narration at the beginning tells us of a princess escaping from the underground realm only to die in the human world, and her father, the king, believed her soul would one day return. So uh, right off the bat, you have Del Toro's like obsession with I don't want to call them like alternative fa- fairy tales, but you know, sort of the grim dark style of fairy tale. I th- and he is obsessed with mythology and this kind of European folk tale. 
tiles and, and that kind of stuff. And it's a very, I don't know, it's, it's a little bit abstract, that little opening animation sequence, but it, it's certainly very intriguing and you're like, oh, what's going to happen? Yeah. We then move to Ophelia and her pregnant mother traveling out to the countryside to live with her new stepfather, a fascist army captain, Vidal, just the nastiest guy in the world. And along the way, she finds like a little boulder which she puts into a statue and then a strange stick insect comes out and it's like following her around and then it transforms into a fairy and leads her to a nearby labyrinth. But I think, apologies up front for pronunciations of names, but if I am saying this right, Ivan Baccaro is one of the best child actresses I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, um, she's she's fantastic. I, I, I know she won some awards. She, she won the BAFTA for... Yes. Or no, was it the... No, it was a Saturn Award for best performance by a younger actress, which I mean, wow, obviously... what a like, category. I know, one of, the, <laughs> one of those highly specific things. But like, no, she's she's fantastic. And... Yeah, this whole thing falls apart if she's not there to hold it together. And she, she is really, really good throughout... But yeah, just right from the jump, she's she. I think she's great. Sergi uh, as as Vidal, just a complete nasty, nasty piece of work. And I think he, I think he is probably one of the best villains of the two thousands. I don't think just really well, kind of like sculpted villain like you completely hate him but they they do that extra thing to kind of like shade in why he might be as kind of fundamentally nasty as he is like the whole backstory with the with the watch is not enough that you'd like sympathize with him but enough to go like oh no this guy's just got a fucking massive chip on his shoulder because his father wanted to show him what a real man was like mm-hmm. like what a fucking like big fuck you to be like he smashed his watch on a rock to let him know what time a real man died it's, it's super fucked up. Um, Sergio Lopez is kind of a not really known for his dramatic work in Spain, and the producers told Del Toro outright, like, you shouldn't cast him, he will not give you what you need, you don't get it because you're Mexican, etc, etc. And big fuck you to all of them, because I think he fucking killed it, and it's I think he said it's, like, his favourite role he's ever played, and, like, it's just such a, yeah, just a purely evil, irredeemable man. And like you said, yeah, I think it is one of the, like, un- Unsung villainous performances in cinema. There's just so many like little touches as well. Stuff like you know, like when the doctor warns him that she shouldn't have travelled so late in her pregnancy, and he just doesn't give a shit because he just he doesn't care about her. He cares about the child. Oh yeah, like a son should be born where his father is. Yes. <laughs> and uh, something that doesn't really translate for us but thanks to the world of movie trivia he uses a Spanish greeting that applies when there's at least one male present in the party so he is gendering the entire arriving group due to the unborn child inside of Ophelia's mother so to say wow. it just really shows you where his head is at that <laughs> he should yeah. be using a different I think, one but... I think my favourite because obviously he's got a lot of kind of like very dismissive lines about like about his wife but the, but the one that always gets me is when they're sat at the dinner table Yeah, um, she doesn't know that people don't want to hear these kinds of stories like she's literally asked to her face like what is the story of how you met Matt Captain Vidal and he's just like god I I can't believe she spent two sentences describing the story of how we met it instinctively kind of bothers me a bit this trope of like husband who clearly like fucking hates his wife but it's like I get that this was very much a thing that happened for a long time in the entire history of marriage but I just I'm like oh, this is just comical, the amount that he has no interest in her whatsoever. And she's like, oh, well. But, you know, it was the Civil War. Or just after the Civil War. Like, it's... it's a different time. Yeah, I mean, like, they literally read out the... Is it is it them storming Normandy, or is it them leaving Dunkirk that they read out in the newspaper? Like, um, 
I think Normandy. You think Normandy? Yeah, it, I couldn't. I couldn't tell because obviously, like, to read it out and like, it it sounds like the American forces are with them, which would imply that like it's the Europeans kind of like coming back into Europe. Yeah, and you see him like brutally murdering that boy in front of his father for having communist propaganda, and it's a real rough time, man. Fidel fucking sucks. So yeah, Ophelia descends down this spiral staircase in this like stone labyrinth that just happens to be next to the house, uh, and she meets this fawn character who declares that she is the daughter of the king of the underworld as seen in the opening like little animation and that she must complete three tasks before the moon is full to like regain her immortality or whatever so this is a just full-on del toro puppet animatronic cgi monster character like between the fawn and the pale man it's like these are the most del toro type movie monsters i think that there are yeah i think that they're, they're the two iconic ones i think yeah. i th- even think that i even think the pale man is a little bit more iconic than the I fawn think so yeah 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 that's that's like the thing that everyone like when you see the five second clip that goes with this movie it's the pale man putting the eyes in up to his hand yeah but yeah you, you've got poor doug jones in this giant suit which he said was like the nicest suit he's ever worn because of how they built it but you know he's in this giant suit he doesn't speak a word of spanish he signs on to do the movie del toro is like you know i won't make it without you only you can do this and he gives him a script in english he's like yeah great 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 and then it's like oh we're gonna shoot in spanish he's like i don't speak spanish and then he spends countless hours learning his own lines in spanish learning ophelia's lines in spanish so he knows when to speak and then del toro at the last minute just has him overdubbed by the narrator pablo adan so yeah it it does work because obviously like the mouth movements have to match up but he does make it up in hellboy 2 because obviously hellboy 1 he's over voiced by david hyde pierce (laughs) and even and even in fantastic four he's overdubbed by Lawrence fishburne (laughs) yeah and then hellboy 2 finally abe sapien gets to have doug jones's voice poor dougie jones like the actor behind so many i well i wouldn't call silver surfer iconic but you know big recognizable characters and no one fucking knows who he is yeah and obviously and obviously he comes back into shape of water again where he plays the amphibian man but even like that character does not speak but yeah this is a great little scene like it's that del toro clearly you know his obsession with this sort of the darker side of fairy tales and stuff and like i think i spent the entire first viewing of the movie waiting for the reveal that the fawn is evil you know like <laughs> just because of the I, way think, I think that's i think that's what i really like about it is he seems quite malevolent but the movie never quite does anything in fact like there's there's a point later on in the movie where you go like no i completely understand why the fawn's acting a bit angry like he's completely justified in in his anger right now don't eat anything jesus christ this scene like obviously this movie won a whole mess of us because it won art direction makeup both of which like are fully on point in this scene the sound design is really good like the sounds that the fawn makes when he like kind of like clicks around is just yeah he like creaks a bit doesn't it is he... it's like he's made of wood exactly yeah and I really like the writing of he says like he's had many names names only the wind and the trees can pronounce it's like that's fuck you Guillermo I can't write anything that good it, it's just really good so the first of these tasks is to put three magic stones into a giant toad's mouth and then take out a key so she goes crawling through this you know she has to find the big tree which is the tree on the poster and like crawl through all this bug infested mud and find this giant toad and trick it into eating the stones instead of some bugs which kills it which the fawn left out and then she takes the key so this 
is gross as fuck. (laughs) I get, like, not just is this, is she a great actress, it's like, she seems really game to do the really gross and scary stuff as well. Yeah, I adore how randomly muddy she gets. Mm -hmm. Like, each time they cut back to her and she's crawling through it, like, she's just muddy in a completely different way that's like, how have you done this? I think it's like the pill bugs or whatever are, like, crawling up her arm and making her... And she, uh, she's, like, wiping them off and stuff like that, but yeah. yeah. So he originally wanted to have this, all these tunnels lead through to, like, a giant domed area, but then he was like, but then the toad doesn't look big. Fuck it, we're building a tiny set, and they had to do it in, like, two days. <laughs> but, yeah, it's... yeah the, the bit where the toad, like, coughs up its entire, like, <sighs> digestive system, and it's <sighs> just orange and coated in flies, and its skin <sighs> deflates. Again, this movie, this movie looks gorgeous. But it's also gross. It's also uh... gross, but it looks amazing. <laughs> like, uh... for a movie that's made as cheaply as it is, for yeah. the, pra- the practical effects, and even though the toad is very obviously CGI, like, it's still one of those things where, like, it holds up. Yeah. It's also one of those things where, like, my favourite thing is, like, she's kind of a bit dumb. She is a bit. <laughs> like, I, I, like, like we, we kind of skipped over this bit, but, like, when she first kind of, like, finds the, the, the fairy and she sees this bug and she's like, oh, it's a fairy. And you're like, mm. Is it, though? <laughs> is it, though? And then, like, it transfigures itself into a fairy based on her picture book. But yeah. the fact that, like, her first reaction is, oh, yeah, it's a fairy. And then, like... <laughs> hey, man, she's lived a very simple life. Like, but also that she decides not to take off this very nice dress that her mother has bought her. No, yeah, she does. She she no, she hangs... takes it off. She takes it off outside, but not like I'm gonna go traipsing off into the woods. I'm gonna wear this very nice dress well, out yeah, to the woods. Yeah, yeah. yeah Toro performed all of the toad noises, so that's how you save some money there on a voice actor. And uh, you know, good on him for being so good at that. So as we said, yeah, she she hangs up the dress outside to avoid ruining it uh, ahead of because uh, Vidal is throwing a dinner party. And, uh, you know, she was given this dress for the party, but despite these efforts, I mean, it was going to be ruined anyway, because she comes outside covered in mud. And it's like, how are you going to touch this thing? But yeah, it like blows off the branch and like gets like draped in mud and, and rain and everything. So yeah, it's ruined. She gets back and her mother sends her to bed without any food, but she does end up sneaking off to get her next task from the fawn. So, you know, the big focus of the movie and what we're talking about now is the fantastical elements, but it feels weird to call it the backdrop, because it is actually, if you look at the runtime of the movie, I think it's got to be about 50-50, if not more, the realism stuff, but you know, this horrible narrative of these Spanish rebels trying to, like, you know, fight against Vidal, and you get all this stuff with them, like, cutting the rations, but then declaring the rebels to be vermin, and stuff like that, and he's giving his whole speech about how, like, oh, everyone's not created equal, and... and yeah, like, that's that's one of those like horrible lines where it's just like the issue is is if they run the country they'll make everyone think they're equal and it's like oh god you're mm-hmm. nuts and even yeah. like when they are giving out the rations later and there's the guy walking up and down giving people bread and saying like it's like no one goes hungry in Spain everyone's got bread it's like mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, and then we see how nice the meal is, and yep. uh, that they're having, and even then, like, because the, the the man and the father that he kills with the bottle. Oh, like, it's so brutal when he does that, like, it's, smashing it's, his face in. Like, it's, it's so brutal, and then he just carries on going through the bag after he's killed both of them, and pulls out the rabbits that they said they were hunting, and then goes like, "Oh, it's your fault I killed them. This is on you. You just didn't search his bag properly enough." <laughs> He's the worst. He's the fucking worst. You also get these scenes with, like, uh, so the character of Mercedes, who's, I guess she's the housekeeper, or 
some kind of assistant or servant to Vidal. And this doctor, they're both assisting the rebels, which is something you know we know long before he does. I think they're both really good. It's just they kind of have to pick their spots in between like the big scenes in the movie kind of thing. They certainly will get their scenes later on. But Yeah, she, she almost would have been in two of our picks for the movies that we would have discussed. Oh, really? What's she in? She's the um, she's Louisa in Itumama Tambien. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> Maribel Verdu is really good mm-hmm. in both of those. Yeah. She um, totally overshadows Ophelia's mother. Oh, 100%, 100%. Like, it feels weird that by the end of the movie, you're kind of, like, so much more on board with their relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though, even though their relationship is founded in, like, a, what, a day? Yeah, and it's just like, I just feel sorry for you, child. <laughs> like, I'm surprised that uh, Ophelia kind of gets away with it as lightly as being sent to bed early with no food. Like, I was expecting, like, Vidal to see her and, like, you know, like, hit the mother or some shit. I don't know, but, yeah, it's... Well, that's what I, I quite, I quite, like, that he is quite hands off like he doesn't give a shit about this woman and child that he's brought up here he only cares about the fact that she's going to give the baby like like even then like the mother's the one who made the dress like he doesn't care about the dress no. like he hasn't paid money for it no she sneaks off back down the labyrinth to talk to the fawn again and um so there's this big sort of stone tablet in the middle and the fawn remarks that oh that's me and that's you on this stone pillar and she's like who's the baby and he just deflects the question and of course it will come up at the end, but it's like, okay, so you've got your foreshadowing right there, and I, I wonder if you, like, pause the scene and, like, can see that tablet well enough, you might even be able to see what is supposed to happen at the end, but, yeah. So, Ophelia's mother suffers some bleeding, and the two are made to sleep in separate rooms, because the Doctor feels like she needs to just be resting, like, all the time. <laughs> So, you know, because of this, Ophelia obviously gets quite distracted from her three tasks. So the fawn appears to her in her room and, you know, scolds her for not having completed the task and and, and that kind of stuff. But then he, he does give her the means to, uh, you know, he says, you know, here's a mandrake root, put it under her bed, give it milk, give it blood, and she'll get better. And it's like, okay, cool. It's, it's It does ostensibly work. Because, I mean, you know, a big part of it is, is all of this in Ophelia's head? Or is it real? And it's like, Del Toro is like, no, it's all real. I think if you look throughout the movie, it's very clear it's real. And, you know, the stuff that happens with her mother kind of hints towards that. Because, like, when Ophelia's reading the magic book that, like, is going to give her her tasks or whatever, there's, like, like the page fills with red. And then yeah. immediately her mother starts bleeding. It's like, and, okay. But it's all, like, I mean, spoilers for later on in the movie, when the the magic root gets burnt, like, immediately. Immediately, her yes. mother kind of like folds over in in pain. Yeah. But then you've also got things, and the one thing is like later on, only one character could possibly see the fawn in the movie, mm-hmm. and they just see Ophelia talking to herself. Mm-hmm. Which is one of those things where it's like even the even at that point, the movie kind of like presents it as being like, mm-hmm. "Ooh, is this is this something that only children can see?" That kind of like fairy tale thing yep. of she's innocent, so therefore she can see. Yeah, he's too evil of heart or something. Because you do in that scene hear the fawn, but Vidal can't see it, but he. Also doesn't react to the voice and it's like does that mean he can't hear it or is he just not really responding in a like huh hey yeah. like yeah it's it is left ambiguous but yeah the second task the this uh, is the iconic one yes it is like, if, you, if you see if you see a still from this movie it is from this task yes so she is given some magic chalk and she is to draw a doorway which will let her enter a strange banquet hall and obtain a dagger and uh, she is given very strict instructions not to eat 
anything. However, she eats two grapes, and the pale man wakes up, and she narrowly gets away. Now, this is definitely the iconic creature design for the whole movie. How this actress was not terrified to do this scene. Like, I'm sure she became very good friends with Doug Jones doing all these scenes with him, but even so, just seeing him sitting there in the full costume in this big room, I don't know how... I mean, maybe she was freaked out the first time she saw it and she just got over it, but yeah, it's so creepy, even before he begins moving. Just him sitting there and... <laughs> it's a fantastic design. The fact that the room is surrounded by pictures of the pale men murdering children is just fantastic. Stephen King yeah. sat next to Del Toro at a screening of this movie, and uh, Del Toro said that seeing his reaction being so like squirmy was worth more than any Oscar could be. So <laughs> I like that. So the piles of shoes in the corner. I don't know if it was on purpose, but to me, I immediately went to like Holocaust like symbolism and like knowing this is set during World War Two and stuff. It's like, I don't know if that is what they were going for, but that's I mean, this, this movie I is This movie is packed with kind of allusions to different things. Like, I, I was texting you whilst watching the movie that her dress very much reminds me of kind of like a colour-inverted version of Alice in Wonderland's dress mm-hmm. from the Disney movie. And obviously, like you mentioned, Chronicles of Narnia and the Fawn. Mm-hmm. Like, he's pulling a lot from kind of like fairy tale imagery Definitely. for this. Yeah, I think um, I think he wanted her dressed in green because it's you know the color of nature and and pan and and, and yeah all the all the stuff that's happening. But I think yeah. I think it very much probably is inspired by Alice in Wonderland her her outfit. But another thing that the pale man is alluding to is it is a critique of the Catholic Church by his own admission because what do you have? You have a banquet untouched. And then you have children that have been devoured. And then there's stigmata, obviously, uh, with the eyes. Uh, This is also, like, I don't know if he actually took the inspiration from it, but there are definitely, like, Japanese demon folklore things with like creatures that have their eyes in their hands kind of thing but yeah when it when he wakes up and like you know puts the eyes in and puts them up to his face it's like oh my god you, this, this yeah. is so creepy what is the rating for this movie because uh, I, think, I think it's a 15 okay because they had to actually give warnings to children in Spain uh, to, to families in Spain because people were taking kids to go see it and it's like no 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 you don't want to do that because <laughs> I mean it's like you know when he's biting the heads off the fairies and stuff and it's just like they burst and it's like Ew. yeah they, they burst and like these are gifts from the fawn where the fawn's just like these gonna help you and like they're like waving at her to go like no 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 don't eat the fucking grapes don't eat yep. them but um, of course she's starving from being sent to bed with no food so. yeah but i also what i also really enjoy is they're not quite helpful no they are a little bit yeah like the, the I, whole, I know the what whole, you mean yeah. the whole the whole point is like they're testing her and so like they go and they point to a lock that she has to open with the key that she got from within the frog but she's kind of like no this isn't all that i need to do it's this one mm-hmm. is the one that you want me to do and we're like we don't find out what terrible thing would have happened if she, she hadn't done it but it is yeah. like it, it like they they are it's that kind of like creeping thing where like are they actually trying to help her or are they trying to do something well if you consider what the last task is i would imagine it is the trying to do something Aspect. Yeah, yeah, and she she has to like draw a new hatch because she oh there's also like you know she has to get in and out before this hourglass expires, but then she has to draw a new and exit, and she does get away. But it's, I think a lot of people are like we need to explore this pale man and what the hell's going on here uh, in a whole side thing, and maybe that is, would have been part of the sequel. Maybe this was always intended to just be like no different from the Toad. It's just that people latched onto it more, and it took on a life of its own. But yeah, it's certainly like the image, even if it you know. It's it's a five minute scene, 
maybe less. So this scene is probably the one that makes me think most of how gorgeous the movie is. Uh, Guillermo Navarro is the person who did the cinematography for this movie. More than deservedly won the Academy Award for cinematography. Yeah, this movie, entire movie is gorgeous. Yeah, and that uh, set, the set of the banquet as well is really good. Yeah. Like the, you know, the candlelit stone hallways and stuff. Yeah, oh, creepy shit. Yeah, it, it, like he's done a lot of movies, but he's also gone on to do a lot of kind of like TV show directing now. He did a lot of Hannibal and Hannibal looks great. He did one episode of Luke Cage of all shows. Oh, yeah. I'll look into that later but yeah some of Luke Cage looks really good <laughs> so back in the quote-unquote real world rebels create a big distraction so that they can raid Vidal's food supplies because that's a thing throughout like right from the beginning like, I think almost the first scene uh there's this giant padlocked sort of like food shed and uh, Mercedes gives Vidal the only key but yeah and you know they're giving out only a tiny amount of it to the locals whereas they're they're feasting and uh, yeah, they create this big distraction and raid the supplies, and a furious Vidal and his men just slaughter anyone who wasn't quick enough to get away, and they capture... It's not Mercedes's brother, he's the one that comes later, isn't it? It's just like... No, a... yeah, they capture, they capture the stutterer. Yeah, the stuttering man. They torture him to the brink of death. The only thing you see is, like, his, his face is swollen up, and his eyes are, like, almost closed. They've broken his hand in so many different places. Well, they're like, he shows him all the different implements. He's like, so you're gonna say things and I'm not going to believe you. This one here, I might start to trust you. This By the time I get to this one here, I'm going to believe everything you say. And it's like, ugh. And even in this scene where like, they're tearing through them up the hills, it's just really violent. Like This is a man of incredible violence. But even then, I, I quite appreciate the movie doesn't do a lot of the torture. No, 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 no. It's all done in, mostly done in implication and sort of... Yeah, like, like you get the scene where he kind of goes to this guy and says, like, if you can count to three without stuttering, I'll let you go. Mm-hmm. Kind of like reinforcing how much of a shit he is, and he doesn't make it, and then the scene cuts away just as he like slams the hammer into his head. The, the other thing I really like about the Rebels is that like it's seemingly everyone but the soldiers like them because yeah. like like the doctor has been smuggling antibiotics up to them for the guy who's been shot which obviously is going to come up very soon and obviously Mercedes brother is one of them and people are sending letters through her to the rebels it's very much is like everyone is everyone who can't fight is kind of like keeping quiet but they all support what the rebels are doing because well, I mean fascism man Del Toro like obviously I think his first love is like grimdark fairy tales but I think he also does I, w- I don't want to say he likes it but he has an affinity for like very cruel men. The brutality of Vidal is yes, is... like 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 Vidal is very similar to Michael Shannon's character in Shape of Water. Yeah, I think in, he's in very good of... at crafting these like just horrible, horrible men that you are scared are going to get away with all of it or like win when you think they shouldn't, kind of thing. Yes. So yeah, the fawn tells Ophelia she's broken the rules. She can never return to the underworld, and she will live and die as a human, and everyone, all of them will fade away, and and very scorning. And this is again where, like, on a first watch, I was like, he's clearly tricking her, like, he wants her to do something bad, but then also I think he's very into this idea that, like, you know, darkness isn't always darkness, and what things that seem bad actually aren't, and the the idea that, like, you know, she's, I don't want to say she's kind of stupid, but, you know, if among his instructions he went out of his way to say don't eat anything (laughs) 
And then it's like, right, you had it. This was actually overwhelmingly easy, if not for the creepy man in the corner that you can just ignore. Yeah, which you, which you didn't seem particularly like put away from. You picked up his eyes and you didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, his eyes. <laughs> Ugh, don't do that. But yeah, it's like, you know, you see the, the, the fawn takes the, the slightly darker turn and like scolds her and everything. And it's also like, oh, so he can just appear to her in her room as well. Like Vidal, uh, you know, he gets finished torturing the rebel and then the doctor euthanizes them because it's like, you know, you are not going to get out of this, but I can give you a pain-free escape. Vidal sort of puts it all together that the Doctor is working with the rebels, and he, like, finds the uh, the medicine in the bag and everything, and it matches what they recovered up in the hills, so he murders the Doctor, and... Uh, Which, was... like, like, the Doctor's last stand is, is was, terrific. Yes, that is like... a hell of a scene for him when he's saying, like, you know, only people like you can blindly follow orders, and, like, walking away from him, knowing what's going to happen. Knowing what's going to happen, but he just kind of walks out, he keeps his dignity mm-hmm. and the Doctor is so blinded by just being told to his face that, like, you are not a good human or whatever. Even <laughs> and killing the person who could potentially save his wife. Because obviously at the exact same moment as this is... He discovers the Mandrake route and is like, this is fucking gross and stupid and what are you doing? And and it's almost like, oh, the, the rebel's going to get away with it because he's going to be distracted by Ophelia, but that's, that's not what happens because he fucks off and then Ophelia's mother burns the mandrake and then the second that I mean does Ophelia see it and hear it like screaming in the fire and she hears it screaming but I don't think the mother does because I think the mother immediately the moment starts screaming she's coiled over and holding her stomach and stuff like that yes and she delivers the baby prematurely and dies from childbirth and it's like Ophelia your your life is not it's not a good life I'm sorry but yeah they you know Vidal gives her the funeral and everything and is holding the baby at the funeral and whatever but it's sad but Vidal makes it clear he suspects Mercedes as well I think he's pretty stupid to have not suspected her earlier but he's sort of toying with her at this point because he's sort of like asking her to her face like and I had the only copy even though the the lock wasn't forced hmm okay and then I let her go and then she attempts to flee with Ophelia but she is quickly caught she does manage to escape torture and mutilate Vidal and then the rebels come and, and like get her away from the the few soldiers that give her chase. And in this little torture scene, you know, you get the little or what the would be torture scene. He's making the comments about, oh, she's just a woman, and and yeah, because top of everything else, he's sexist. Well, yeah, <laughs> I don't want to say the least of his crimes, but you know, uh, yeah, of course he is, of course, also sexist. But it means he's left alone with her, whereas like I think some of his men were there while he tortured the other rebel. But he's very much like, oh, you can leave me with her. She's just a woman. And then she, of course, fires back with like that's how I got away with this. Yeah. He does He does acknowledge pride is his fault, is his like, fault. I mean, and it's um, how she gets away with it again, because they don't search her for weapons. Exactly. And we, 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 we see know... that close up twice of her like folding the knife up into her frock or whatever. So it's like encoding it in your head that's there. And it's a really brutal moment. I don't know, it's like on the one hand it's like you should have killed him, but also it's like that was, that was dark fucking stuff. Like she's shoving the mouth in, uh, <laughs> shoving the knife in his mouth and, and uh, giving him the Joker smile. <laughs> like, Yeah, I think it's the thing is, like, he's not going to survive, really, because he doesn't get any medical treatment. No, and he's killed um, the doctor, so... <laughs> yeah, he's killed the doctor, he's not going to get any medical treatment. He's been stabbed just above the heart, it would yeah. appear, and had probably his tendons in one arm completely ripped out. Um, and then... And then and he's he, covered in blood, and... and he's it's... covered in blood, which which makes it the, the kind of chase that happens in a moment when he goes back to the room and keeps doing shots of alcohol, even though his mouth's been cut open yeah, like, and kind of wincing. You see him stitch the mouth, cl- and, like, I don't know how they did that. I mean, yeah, what a terrific 
big piece of kind of like is it cgi is it is it yeah. makeup is it it's just really good it's just this clean broken skin of just like his mouth is wider than it should be right now and like seeing him stitch it up and then bleeding through the bandage the second he drinks and it's like yeah you're you're fucked man you need yeah and then, and then his immediate doctor. response is to have a second shot immediately yeah. after that <laughs> i mean all whilst this ophelia's trying to steal her brother <laughs> yes so the fawn comes to Ophelia and is like, I'll give you one more chance. And she promises to do exactly as asked this time, which, you know, if you know anything of, you know, sort of Greek tragic fairy tales and, uh, fairy tales, Greek tragic myths and, I don't know, just the warning signs start going off when someone's like, but this time you must do exactly as I tell you. It's like, he's going to ask you to do something you're not going to like or he wouldn't have said that. So she is tasked with bringing her new brother down to the labyrinth. And, uh, you know, she does... She does steal it. Uh, it. She does, uh, you know, sneak into Vidal's chambers and, like, you know, uh, manage to get her brother and, and run away. And, like, you see Vidal, like, finds the chalk in the room. And he, of course, immediately crushes it because it's all he knows how to do is destroy things. <laughs> um, you know, where she is, like, enchanted by it and takes good care of it. He just crushes it in his hand without even thinking about it. And, like, he's about to catch her, but the rebels do come back to attack again. Um, because Mercedes wants to come back for Ophelia and it's like the irony of like Ophelia's already gonna get away maybe but then you guys coming back she does run away <laughs> and um, yeah. you get this this final task and, and the sort of climax in the movie of like you know Vidal chases her into the labyrinth like staggering then... along because he's done two shots of whiskey <laughs> or whatever and he's lost a lot of blood so yes. he's not fully of his right mind yes because he does like almost get her right there and then and it's like well you're fucked but she he, like staggers on it over a little bit and it's like oh did she poison no no he's just drunk and very low on blood yeah so he chases her uh, into the middle while like the rebels are fighting everywhere and they get you know she gets to the middle of the labyrinth again and the fawn says only the blood of an innocent will uh, like open the portal and the, the strong implication of like you got a key that gets a special knife that is used to you must kill your baby the baby <laughs> and she of course is like absolutely not i'm not handing my brother over but then vidal arrives as she's having this sort of argument with the fawn uh, he has to take a longer route because the whole harry Potter four thing of like the maze is like closing paths off and stuff like that but yeah he gets there and he snatches his son back he does kill the spare as well Yes, he does kill the spare. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> Who goes on to be Batman, so he wins. Yeah, he, he shoots Ophelia, and uh, we see her blood trickling down into the, like, you know, down the spiral stairs or whatever. Yeah, I mean, we kind of already talked about it, but him getting there, and it's like, right, here's the moment of truth. Can Vidal see the fawn? No, he can't. But as, as we said, like, we can still hear it, and is the implication he is invisible to someone like Vidal? Or is it just, you know, we're seeing a lot of this move from Ophelia's point of view, so if it's real to her, it's real to us. Like, who knows? I mean, I think we all know that it is implied to have all been real, but if it is a better movie for you, if, like, this is all just a child trying to escape from, like, the grimmest of realities, then hey, you've got that there for you if you want it. I don't think it makes it a better movie reading it one way or the other. I just quite appreciate that the option is there for you to yeah. kind of, like, question yeah. the reality of this world. That's what I mean. Like, if you are a person that, like, finds that to be a more poignant ending, it is good that that is there for you. But equally, if you want to just buy the fantasy as 100% real, then that is there for you. So I think it is. it does do a good job. I really like when Vidal, you know, exits the labyrinth and then just all the rebels are there and he knows he's dead. So he just hands his son over to Mercedes and it's like, I don't know, 
know, on some level it's like you might expect him to try and use the baby as a human shield or be like, let me go or I will kill the baby. But it's like, I don't want to say he has redeeming features, but you don't doubt that his son is incredibly important to him. But maybe not for a traditional loving reason, but more of like a, this is my legacy. Because that's exactly what she does. She denies him that legacy by being like, I'm never even going to tell him your name. And then they kill him. Him finally being brought down and it coming at the hands of these people whose lives he has, he has made horrible and who he has talked down about. And, and him having that legacy torn away from him at the last moment as well. It's like, yeah, fuck you. But yeah. Yeah, what, I, what I also quite enjoy is, not, not about this, but just in terms of, because like, we then find out that, that she gets into the afterlife or the, yes. the whatever it is uh, well, because call she, it like the realm of the, uh, un- the underworld the underground realm or something it's like do you, yeah i mean are you saying hell are you saying the underworld like yeah <laughs> so so she she gets in and they kind of like the form comes out and says like you passed the final test because yes. you didn't want to sacrifice your brother which then kind of makes you go like what was the point of that two tasks then if you didn't need the knife to like to set she, it up to seem like that is what must happen like the importance yeah. of this third test and like yeah and yeah like and they very specifically i mean her father the king says very specifically like choosing to spill your own blood rather than that of an innocent is the true test of like does he say of like royalty or, or, or... Uh, so it's it, it's something along those lines it's just the other thing was like because obviously it seems quite apparent that like he isn't going to kill the baby the fawn <laughs> if you yeah. if you believe that like this is where it's going to go like the baby the fawn because the fawn very bluntly goes like oh it's just a pinprick it's fine yeah he's, well yeah he tries to sell it that way yeah <laughs> but, like, and, um, but like from based on like how this plays out it's like well the fawn's not going to just kill the baby surely the form will do the pinprick and go well you failed you gave me the child mm, yeah i guess oh an equally dark ending <laughs> just the the child just goes off with the form maybe i don't know because we see that blood drop down so it, it the, the blood has been spilled and it's like you know another way would be ophelia is an innocent so they got the blood of an innocent after all but then the king saying like you know Spilling your own rather than an innocent is is the right is the true test, and in, it is the same actress playing her mother down here as it, you know, her mother in the quote unquote real world. Yeah, which is one of those things where it's also kind of like, is this is it all real? And I, obviously, like Gamora says that it is, but it's one of those things where like she logically would imagine her mother. Totally, and so that's how it works both ways. And yeah, Del Toro states it should be taken as real. And there are many clues throughout the movie that it should be. And he refers to a... When talking about this ending in particular, he, he like cites Kierkegaard, who says the tyrant's reign ends with his death, but the martyr's reign starts with his death. And how living forever by choosing how you die, and all this sort of stuff. And like the biggest thing that thematically links the two, you know, the supernatural side with, uh, with the Civil War... Or it's not... I mean, Civil War's over, but you know, the rebellion story, is the importance of having the courage to rebel. And, like, throughout all of this, you know, the rebels are our good guys fighting against Vidal and his men. Like, the Doctor was rebellious and he he chose his good death and Mercedes defied him. And then, But then Ophelia, throughout all of her tasks, has ha- has been rebellious. Like, she, she didn't do exactly as she was told in the Pale Man task. And the final task, she essentially had to just say no. And, yeah, I, that is what he's going for with this, you know, dual narrative, I guess. Is, is, and, you know, there's there's talk of, like, doing a third movie. Like, not necessarily a Pan's Labyrinth sequel, but, like, a third Spanish Civil War supernatural movie. And I think, yeah, I, I think that's just something that he likes to explore throughout his career of, like, you know, having the courage to, like, stand up to bullies and stuff. You know, we then... You do see Ophelia die. She smiles and then 
ostensibly yeah, the, dies. Yeah, the, the light goes out in her eyes, which yeah, is and astounding. Like... Astounding for an actress who's only 11 years old when she was filming this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's like, you know, this is either to you, when people are close to death, you know, their brain just is flooded with chemicals that makes them experience all kinds of things, and, like, this is the end of her fantasy, and then she dies, or she is, like, her soul or spirit is crossing over, and then her mortal vessel is gone, but she's fine down there. It's like, take it how you want. But that is the end of the movie, and, yeah, I... <sighs> What is what is your hang-up? I think, like, I understand it. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm going to say something and you're just going to immediately be like, but this. <laughs> on some level, I kind of wish he either made a full-on fucking fantasy movie or a full-on fucking war movie. And I kind of think that neither gets quite enough time. But I do understand that they are supposed to be intrinsically linked in that yeah, way. I think, I think that, yeah, I think, I think that fully works for me, is that kind of, like, interplay between the two of them, this kind of, like, child's fantasy surrounded by this awful, awful circumstance. And uh, it's it not so much an escapist thing, but it's like the two things are kind of intertwined in how the war narrative is kind of, like, taken apart from this this fairy tale kind of like structure of you need to do three tasks where there are rules and life is structured and then this just beautiful chaos of what's going on in the rebellion where like people are being murdered for no other reason than they can't yeah and and i think that's the kind of thing where like we know how a fairy tale structure works and the movie still obeys all the rules of how that narrative works like three tasks we know that she's gonna probably kind of like win in the end but it's gonna be a little bit dark as it goes on versus and also like like, you know, if you do this, then a good outcome will be yours. Whereas, you know, in that grim reality of life, you can do all the right things and still be murdered with a bottle. <laughs> yeah, so... no, exactly. And it's and I think I think the two things kind of like work really beautifully together. But I can also understand why you'd want more of one or the other. Yeah, um, I I do think there are. I, don't, I almost feel like the fantasy stuff isn't doesn't have enough room. I feel that the war thing is, is pretty much fully achieved. But I kind of wish. Like, there was a little bit more with the Pale Man, maybe a little bit more with the Frog, like... Oh, sorry, the Toad. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think, I, I think it, just, it just helps to make it a really tight movie, where, like, yeah. it, it, doesn't, it doesn't spend too much time with them. And, and, and also, all... potentially, some of it is budget. Like... Yes, potentially. <laughs> but also, it lets it stay in your memory more. The Pale Man wouldn't be as iconic if there was, like, the flashback sequence to what the Pale Man does, and the Pale Man's, like, ripping the entrails out of small children and stuff like that, rather than just her seeing some stone carvings on the walls. Yeah. And then equally, I've seen him do like a full-on fantasy movie. I've seen Hellboy. I've seen Shape of Water. I mean, Shape of Water does... No, no, that's a full fantasy movie. Like, And neither of those are as good as this. So I guess my complaints are none. I think it's just more that like, I acknowledge this is very good, but that's it for me. You know, like I, I, I think you do have a fundamental kind of like disconnect with Guillermo del Toro's style. Yeah, like, it's like, like, like it's cool that someone like this is out there making something just so deliberately different to uh what we are used to seeing and that like he this is very much his aesthetic and it's very cool that he's out there making it it's just it's not something that i'm like massively emotionally attached to uh, as an unfeeling cyborg man no, yeah. it's just, i mean but like the, the fact that the fact you're coming away and going like i'm not a huge fan of hellboy one and hellboy two i'm not a huge fan of of blade two i, I think i could yeah I, but I, I, I hellboy one and two are a lot better than blade two i was gonna <laughs> say that <laughs> yeah I, I think hellboy one and two are like only a couple of scenes away from being really really good movies 
movies. I think there's a lot of great stuff in both of them, but then this is, I think, clearly better than anything else he's done. Yeah, yeah. I think I think this this is my favorite of his movies. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think it works beautifully. Same, I think it's, I think it's a gorgeous-looking movie. I'm deeply disappointed it didn't win Best Foreign Film Film at the Oscars. I mean, that like was... the lives the lives of others is fantastic, but I feel yeah. like Pan's Labyrinth has had that pop culture yeah. bleed that you don't get very often from foreign language movies. Oh yeah, it's like you know when talking about like X number of films to see before you die, and like this is the like how-to guide for being like a film person. <laughs> like, like you see this movie crop up everywhere, and it is a strong favorite for a lot of people uh, who operate in this space. And like I get it, it's just it's not hitting me that same way it is hitting other people. But like I can't deny it. it's like a fantastically well-made film, and yeah, it's it's very good stuff. I'm glad you know I'm glad it's on the list. I wouldn't try and argue it off the list. It's just not one that I would be like, oh my god, and, and Pan's Labyrinth. But, you know, that's true of several films that are on here, but I still think, you know, objectively, they deserve their place on here. And yes. It's the highest reviewed movie we have on here, right? In yeah, I think, I think, I think so. Life. I think we've, I've, I've got a little aggregate summary thing going on, and this is the only movie that cracks it into the 90s. Oof. We've got two 88 movies coming up in the next okay. batch of movies, which is the second highest batch of them, which I, I you've only seen one of them, I think? Yeah. <laughs> well... Speaking of the next batch of movies, thank you for listening to this episode. Do go to enterthereallworld.com, like, comment, subscribe, soundcloud.com, slash Mike and Matt. Uh, we're on YouTube, we're on Spotify, we're on Stitcher, we're on iTunes, you name it. But next week, we will be doing Sunshine, uh, which is actually what we'll be doing next week, unlike last week when I thought we were doing it this week. We're doing and Sunshine, maybe... not Danny Boyle's Oscar-winning Slumdog Millionaire, because we want to be contrarian, and also we want to... Chris Evans and Spaceman. Yeah. <laughs> Who thought it would happen? Yeah, uh, yeah uh, a movie that almost got bounced from the list many times, but has yeah. made it on. And I look forward to doing it as we try and justify keeping it on over. I know, especially in terms of like we are about to start a six-week stint in 2007. Oh my good lord! Right, well, get ready for that. We're gonna go do the same. Ben's gonna go watch a movie about stripping. I'm gonna edit an episode of this podcast. Ben, before before you see the strippers, are you able to confirm? Will there be movies? I mean, I'm going to see a movie about strippers, so yes, there will be movies. There's at least one movie once again. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> There's at least at least one movie, and that movie is about strippers. Just as the good Lord intended. Goodbye, everyone. Still I didn't know, and I didn't